0: Shalom. Thank you for joining us here this week here at Benai Shalom. I'm Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home for our Arab Shabbat broadcast. Um, right now, my father's feeling a bit under the weather for this week's broadcast, so uh, we have a special treat. Our brother Daniel Musson is going to be giving our Haftorah portion for this week, so we're looking forward to that a um, couple of announcements here that we'd like to make um, our upcoming feast for the feast of Shavuot which is a conference it's going to take place in Norman Oklahoma June 2 through 4 right now our registration is closed however uh, there is registration open at the door for the local folks um, that they can show up and still come and attend attend the conference so uh, please plan on joining us for that and for those that have registered we're looking forward to seeing you there um, we also have expanded our ability to live Live stream the teachings of Shavuot. For those who can't come, we're asking that you give a donation uh, to help cover the cost of uh, the rental of the facility and uh, things like that for a donation. And then you will receive a link to uh, watch the teachings of the Shavuot conference online uh, via live stream. There's a URL on the screen right now. You can go there to donate. And from there, you can then learn how to watch the teachings if you're unable to attend the feast with us. So So we hope that you join us in that way as well our Feast of Tabernacles event is coming up here very soon um, our RV space in the main campground is filling up very quickly we're almost full um, so we really want to encourage you if you want to come and if you're bringing an RV we encourage you to get registered as soon as possible also we don't start placing those RVs in the campground until people have paid in full uh, so for those of you that are coming and wanting to uh, secure your spot uh, in the main campground for the Feast of Tabernacles uh, register get paid and uh We look forward to seeing you at that appointed time as well. That's our announcements for the week. Um, So if you would now, uh, join with us with Kiddush and the family blessings as we get the Sabbath underway.
1: Shabbat
0: Shabbat Shalom!
1: Shabbat Shalom!
0: Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath.
1: the candles
2: out again. Not this time. No. It's so smoky. <laughs> okay, you ready? <laughs> ready. Help me. Ready? <laughs> Adonai, hello, hey no my calom Ha shirk it is
3: Blessed are you, O Lord our God,
1: King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and has commanded us
2: to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world.
0: Amen. Amen. Kiddush, the blessing over the cup.
3: Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our
0: God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Hamotzi,
3: blessing over the bread. (laughs) Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch at Adonai Eloheinu <speaking> Melech Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz
0: <Hebrew> Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen.
1: Yeah, it's all right.
0: Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household, I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons.
3: You May He lift up His countenance and grant you peace. May you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. May the Lord with you ever be. May He bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. Bless you and grant you long life. May God make you a good husband. And May He prepare a holy wife for you. May the Lord protect and defend you.
0: Our now let us bless our daughters.
3: May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance and grant you peace. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May He bring you home unto the land prepared for. Bless you and grant you long life. May God make you good mothers and may He bring you husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. So here are seven prayers, Amen. Shabbat Shalom!
0: Shabbat Shalom! Shabbat Shalom! Shabbat Shalom!
4: She bought a ship, 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 a ship, bought a a ship, a i of the trial, i the trial, i the a trial, the style a trial, i a trial, i the a trial, line. Hold on,
2: Name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved in
3: that day.
2: Feel You
0: are our son. Shabbat, shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would turn in your Bibles to the fourth book of Moses, the Book of Numbers, where we will begin our portion for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week is entitled Bamidbar, which is in the wilderness, which is also the Hebrew name for this book of the Bible, the fourth book of Moses. Um, In our English, we call it the book of Numbers. That came from the Greek Septuagint that went to describe what the name of this book of the Bible would be called. And what there is in this book is a great deal of numbers. What is going to happen here, and let me give a little bit of an overview of this book of the Bible as we begin is that at the beginning here, we're going to take a census. After the children of Israel have left Egypt, after they've gone to Mount Sinai and have received the covenant of the Lord, the commandments, the instructions to build the tabernacle, we've established the priesthood, we've given a whole series of commandments regarding that as well. And now what we're going to do is we're going to take a census of the children of Israel, and we're going to see how many men can go to war uh, in the case of going through the wilderness. Because what's going to happen here in this book is a series of journeys. They're going to leave Mount Sinai and they're going to go to toward the promised land and travel in the wilderness. Now, what also happens in this book is a great deal of mumbling, a great deal of grumbling, a great deal of conflict amongst the children of Israel, not only within the camp, but amongst the leadership and also the testing and grumbling against God For everything that he's done. Even though he's delivered them out of Egypt. Even though he's made covenant with them. There's a great deal of problems and issues that come up through the course of traveling in the wilderness. And there'll be a great number of uh, sons of Israel that die in the process. Whether it be from testing God. Or whether it be by plague. Or whether it be by rebellion. Such as the case of Korah. That um, still at the end of the book we're going to take another census. And the number of people at the end of the book of numbers and at the end of all the traveling in the wilderness and all the generation that had passes away before going into the promised land, that number will still be very similar to the same over 600,000 sons of Israel able to go to war. This reflects God's faithfulness that even when we fail, even when we do not believe in him, even when we test God and even when God even strikes us with judgment, he remains faithful in everything that he does with us. There's so many things that we can learn from this book in the ways that the children of Israel rebelled against God that we can we almost have the cheat sheet, if you will, for the journey in which God is taking us. To the promised land. That there's a pattern in all of these things. Of the journey of a believer. As you come into faith in Yeshua the Messiah. As you are saved by grace through faith. That just as the children of Israel were saved from the slavery in Egypt. We're saved by belief in Yeshua the Messiah. And we're saved by grace from the slavery of sin. And then we're instructed to be righteous. And be a holy people. And to be holy as he is holy. Yet we make mistakes. Yet we don't always follow the Lord completely Yet we have the example of the children of Israel, the sons of Israel Making those mistakes And that we can learn from that And we can take that to heart And then we can apply those things in our life That we don't make the same mistakes of our forefathers In fact, we might confess the iniquity of our forefathers And that we ourselves have no righteousness The children of Israel belong to God God, they were God's chosen people, and if we they we are their descendants, then we too have a right to that to to that identity, to that claim. And so that's something I want to keep in mind as we go through the book of Numbers here in this Torah cycle this year. That I want to we should always keep in mind as we go through the process of our spiritual journey as we're continuing to go grow closer to the Lord and to the place where He is leading us. Amen. The numbers in this book are very interesting because there's actually some critics of the book of Numbers and some of these uh, number counts that appear here in our portion this week. Um, I should say our portion starts in Numbers chapter 1 and extends through chapter 4 at verse 20. Um, and so the first part of our Torah portion lists... The genealogy of the tribes of Israel, it lists the tribes, it lists the name of the leader or the commander of the tribe, and then it lists the number of men in that tribe that were able to go to war, that were of the age of 20 or more. Now what's interesting about every single one of these numbers is that every single one of them end in a zero They're all divisible by ten. There's no odd numbers. There's no uh, Extra there's not a there's not a seven at the end of any of these numbers And so some critics of the scripture have actually said that the numbers are Either inflated or not exactly accurate Now I would not put it past the Lord in His amazing uh, power and wisdom and everything that He does, that when it literally says that there was exactly um, 600, uh, 603,550. that you know that when it ends on fifty and it's not fifty-one, it's not forty-nine, I wouldn't put it past God that that's exactly the number that it was. There's no just because every single tribe listed. All ended, all the number, numbers ended in a zero does not mean that it's false, does not mean that it's incorrect. It's an amazing coincidence or circumstance. And one of the things that I've always believed about, um, the, this book, the number counts, and when you list, have a listing of names, and what many Torah teachers have said for many, many years, is that there's always something greater going on. There's always something deeper to glean out of the information. In the same way that we, when we get to Numbers chapter 33, which, which is actually my birth portion, we start talking about we have 42 journeys in the wilderness and the names that are listed. I was always told for so many years that there was a great prophecy in the meanings of those names. But I had never heard it done before. And so when I went, I did a study at one point in time where I went in and dug in and looked at those names. What are the meanings of the names? What are the Hebrew letters? What happened at those locations? And in, in, indeed, there is an incredible Incredible parallel through the spiritual life of a believer in the meanings of the names that are listed in Numbers chapter 33. There's no doubt in my mind that there is a greater meaning, a greater study that can be done. In my short time for this uh, week, um, for this uh, service, for this uh, week, I don't have the time to go in and do that study and start to really try and draw some of these things out. This is something that would be a greater study that I'd encourage either someone else to do or I would l- look forward to doing that at some point in time when I have the time. But in the names of the captains, in the names of the fathers of the captains, which are also listed, and in the specific meanings of every single number of per- persons that were counted in this count, There's no doubt in my mind that there is a greater mystery at work here. These are not idle words. These are not just things that are are in our scripture that God has, has ordained and put in this scripture. That so many people have been led to the Lord in a belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The almighty creator of heaven and earth. That there is power for someone who can declare the ends from the beginning, he can take a single number and speak volumes of knowledge and wisdom to us. And so I look forward to learning more about this as I grow, as I uh, continue to grow either in my own studies and as others grow. I look forward to learning more about the wisdom that comes out of these words, out of this scripture, out of this list. For me personally, I've always loved the book of Numbers. Like I said, my birth portion was in there. I've always loved Numbers chapter 1 because my full name, Ephraim, Nishon Judah, actually appears in the scripture. Ephraim and Judah being one of the two of the tribes that are listed. And Nishon was the leader of the captain of Judah going into the wilderness. I always highlighted it in my Bible and I always loved opening up Numbers chapter 1. And here we are again, opening up the scripture with an opportunity to teach the Torah portion. Now when it comes to um, counting numbers and what what is God really trying to do or, or show here or teach us what can we learn what can we apply in our personal life uh, in all these things we do continue the narrative coming from out of the book of Leviticus of being holy for God is holy in fact I want to go ahead right now I want to skip ahead to the end of our Torah portion and describe something that will lead into greater things At the end of the book uh, of our Torah portion here in Numbers chapter 4, we have the commandments and the procedure for the Levites going into the tabernacle and packing everything up when it was time to journey. Let me go ahead and read here Numbers chapter 4, verse 4. This is the service of the sons of Kohath which is one of the families of Levi, in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come. They shall take down the covering of the veil and cover the ark of testimony with it. They shall put a covering of badger skins, that's the tachash skins in the Hebrew, and spread over it a cloth entirely of blue and then shall insert its poles. What continues on is a procedure of how to cover up the table of showbread. How to cover the golden altar of incense. How to cover the menorah. And what was going to happen is that then when it came to go, the sons of Kohath, which is one of the families of Levi, that had been set apart from the rest of the children of Israel, that they were to then carry the whole, most holy uh, items of the tabernacle when they journeyed to a new location. But it says the sons of Kohath couldn't watch The sons of Aaron as they did these things. They couldn't touch the holy thing. They could only touch the poles as those things were carried. And yet they were covered in blue as they were carried. Now, for those of you that have heard me teach Torah portion before. That the portion of Korah is one that I've had an opportunity to teach a great number of times. Which I actually like very much. This great rebellion. This is the planting of the seeds of a rebellion that's going to take place. Because it's the commandment that comes later. About this blue thread of tying it into the tassel of your garments. That is going to set Korah off. That is going to cause a great rebellion. Why? Well, as I just described here, Korah had, and his sons, his family, the sons of Kohath, had a great honor to carry the most holy articles of the tabernacle. To be that close to God, his presence, and the things that he commanded to be created. But Korah wanted more. Korah wanted more. He wanted to, He didn't want to keep looking at something that was supposedly brilliant in gold covered in blue. So when something else came up about the color blue, it set him off. He couldn't handle it anymore. And that's when the rebellion began. It's one of the things to always keep in mind to, that we have to remember. Be holy for I am holy. And that there is a proper procedure and protocol. That when we're also talking about the camp of the children of Israel. And that the Levites... Were to be the intercessors between the people and God. And that they had to remain holy and proper in all the things that they did. We should never be discouraged by the position that God has put us in. For the position that God, the way he values us, the way he counts us. What he has called us to do and what he has asked us to do. This is a very holy thing we're still in the process of doing as we are called to be a holy people we have to always be mindful of the things that we have been called to do. This is very important as well there's a parallel to this specific passage in 2nd Samuel chapter 6 where it's talking about Uzzah who uh, the ark was being carried in to Jerusalem and it stumbled and he touched the ark as it was teetering and he died immediately in the process of touching the ark. This is not these are not idle words here ladies and gentlemen. These are things that are the, for your very life and death. Of this situation So these are things that we should always keep in mind I mentioned that we should always pay attention to how God counts us How God sees us Let me Now going back and looking at this census that was taken here at the beginning of the book One thing that I do have to note that's very interesting Is the number of the total sons of Israel that could go to war That was 603,550 That exact number Of this census that was taken, which was, which by the way was taken in the second year, in the second month, on the first day um, after they had left Egypt, is the exact same number. Of the sons of Israel that were counted when we counted them with the holy half shekel back in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 38. Each man gave a half shekel to the sanctuary and that was counted as another census. And the exact same number of sons of Israel that were counted in that census is the exact same number that we have here. However... Both of those counts took place at two different times. One during the construction of the tabernacle, the other being done here at the start of the second year. And in this count, the Levites weren't counted. In the first count, the Levites were counted. Again, this is another parallel, some mystery of scripture, that what is the significance of this number, 603,550, between two different counts. And it's showing God's presence in his faithfulness, I believe. Now, when we're talking about counting, we have the opportunity to start talking about the book of Numbers. What do numbers mean to us? What is it the thing? What is the count that's doing? When is it good to count something? Count yourself. Count. Be counted as a group or a people or a majority. What, when is it good? Well, here we have the commandment of God to take account of who are the sons of Israel. Who are they? What did they represent? And so the commandment here is very good. Now, when counting is bad is when it's not commanded. When God has said, don't count up something for yourself. We have an example of this in Second Samuel chapter 24, where the king, where King David conquered all the lands of Canaan and he did had a great victory in all the war. And then he said, you know what? Let's count up. How big is the kingdom? How wonderful a thing is this done? And this was a great sin as it's described in the scripture. That he was not called or commanded to make that count at that time. So what we have here is we have times and seasons when it is good to count up something. And it's, then there's times when it is not good. So let's talk about that. Let's give some of the examples here. The children of Israel were counted to know who were able to go to war. This is a good thing to know. We're going to travel in the wilderness here during the course of the book of Numbers and all these journeys of the wilderness we will come across kingdoms that we will need to go to war against, that we will fight against. There's some that God commands us to go around or to speak and just ask to pass and not go to war. There's other kingdoms in the land of Moab that we will be asked to go and slay the kings and conquer a kingdom. It's good to know what your numbers are in the case of going to war. You wouldn't want to start a fight if you don't have the numbers on your side. This is just, this is basic standard principles. Anybody in the military, this makes perfect sense. To know what is your strength, what is your capabilities. So to do this uh, here at the book of Numbers, very good thing to know about the children of Israel. The other thing too is this is the way that the camp was organized. They were organized in marshaled array, that there were that the tribes of Israel camped around the Tabernacle of Meeting and around the, Levit- the Levites in a way that was everything, everyone was kept organized. We have specific details of how they were to be counted. They were to stand by the standard, by the banner that they held with the leader that was called by God and that they were able to be counted and numbered. And we knew when everybody was there and we knew when somebody was missing. This is done in school. This is done in in any time that you have a group of people that you want to make sure that nobody is left behind. So we do this in a way to organize the people. One of the things that we've done here, especially with our ministry here, when we do um, the Feast of Tabernacles, when we do Camp Yeshua... We make it a very good point to take our registrations, know exactly who's going to be on the campground, and we place them in a place where they are not just a number, but they are a name, they're a person, they have a specific place in the camp. This is one of the things that some people say when you go to an event, if you will, and you see one that is more organized and you say, wow, this is really organized. Everybody knows where everybody is, everybody that we all have name tags with our information on it and everything is all set up. And you can you get that sense that there's a piece about you when you're in a new place and that there is some organization to it. This is a very good thing to have. You've so maybe have gone to a place that maybe is a, an event that isn't organized. You don't know when the schedule is. You don't know when the next teaching is. You don't know when something is open or when something's not. Or you, you're talking to somebody and you don't even know if they're a part of the event because nobody has any name tags. Whatever it might be, that there is a there, there's a discouragement. There's a there's an uneasiness when you're in that sort of situation. So where we have the children of Israel. Organized in martial array to the exacting number of who's supposed to be there and who's a, a part of these families. Each one was counted. Each one was the name of a person that was specific to them. That was called by God. That this isn't just some free-for-all. This is, there is a very specific place. And what it is, is it actually ministers to you personally. When you are counted amongst a group of people. And that you are considered with your peers in a place, in an organization, at an event. And that's something that we have seen, and that's something you take application to when you have in your families, in your organizations, your businesses, or any events, or your ministry, what it might be, is to, the children of Israel had to be organized in the place that they were, and we did this with a count, with a number count. There's a plan and a purpose to all of these things. Now, there's also something else when it comes to numbering that should be mentioned at all times. We say we mention this on occasion, usually, and that is the form of gematria where we take numbers and we draw out other meanings out of those numbers. When we take words and the number values of the Hebrew letters that make up those words give us a number and then we parallel that to other parts of Scripture now. One of the things that anybody, if you mention Gematria here, um, and if you can hear it publicly and you say it from a pulpit or say it on a broadcast, some people will immediately call you a Kabbalist. Because that is a, a tactic that, and that is a strategy and thing that that Kabbalists, who are Jewish uh, mysticists, if you will, uh that... Um, will they use this all the time They use it to tell prophecy And to tell stories and to interpret things And, and, and different things like that That is not necessarily the case When we use Gematria and when I do it personally, I am looking for something to build confidence in God, in his infinite wisdom. When there's a connection between a word that has a various meaning, when we see that Yeshua told the disciples to cast the net and they caught 153 fish and you find that 153 somewhere else in scripture, it gives you confidence in the almighty creator of heaven and earth and his infinite intelligence to parallel his words and his anointed message. That's not to mean that we're supposed to use it all the time to prophesy or to uh, uh, proclaim things that aren't confirmed. In the same way that prophecy is done, that prophecy is a way to describe something after it happens. So that makes it very hard to read a prophecy and then to know exactly what's going to happen. In fact, when prophecies are fulfilled, they usually happen in ways you didn't expect that it was fulfilled. In the same way, we always want to be careful in how we interpret scripture, how we interpret numbers. And that's something that we should always keep our focus on. What is glorifying to the Lord in what we're teaching? and what we're learning, and what we're reading, and what we're studying. We always want to keep that in mind. However, in my life personally, and I know in a great number of other people, when you see these numbers, and when they connect to something else, it builds confidence in the Lord. And some people say it's coincidence, but I said earlier this year that coincidence builds confidence. And so that's always what I'm looking for whenever I go to look at these numbers or I'm looking for something deeper in Scripture. So when is counting bad? When is doing a count or looking at numbers can be a bad thing? Well, I just said gematria is a good, can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing because if we look too much into that, if we follow too far after, we're looking after uh, uh, mystical um, coincidences. That how far are, are we sure we're on the path with God? Are we sure we're on the right journey? When our minds start to wonder, because so many of those things can be distracting for others, especially in their walk of faith. One of the other things that is when counting is bad is when it can provoke jealousy or envy. Let me say this. If you attend a congregation or a fellowship in an area, and maybe there's another congregation and another fellowship in the same area. And maybe you two, they get along okay. But one of the things that you don't ever want to do is you don't want to count the attendance of your congregation. And then go to the other one and count their attendance and maybe their attendance is less. So then you stand up and say proudly, we have a bigger congregation than the other one. You never want to do that. That is not something that's not commanded. And it's all done based on jealousy and based on envy. Something interesting about those two words. Jealousy, uh, I heard just recently, um, which I kind of like. Jealousy is something where somebody has something that you want and, and you want it to. And you just, you'd like to have it. Envy is almost is the worst sense where you want to have it and you don't want the other one to have it as well. Or that you want what they have and then they have nothing. That is the difference when you have difference between jealousy, envy. And this is one of the motivating factors that somebody would want to count something. They want to count their blessings. They want to count things up and they want to think that they are greater and mightier than maybe someone else. That is not the right way and that is not the right reason to do a count and be counted in a majority, if you will. That's the other reason why you might count is that you might find out and you might say, Hey, I got all of these people on my side, so I'm in a majority. And you're not in a majority, so then therefore I'm greater than you. One of the things we do, going back to the story of Korah, when Korah approached Moses, he approached with 250 princes. Men of renown. Look at this company that I have collected here. 250 leaders amongst the tribes of Israel. Here I come. We've counted. We're all here. We're counted. We're counted for. And we're all standing together to rebel against you, Moses. Was that a correct count to make? Was that the correct way to do? To to think whether you are right in a certain circumstance because you just happen to be in the majority? For those of you that ever do debates or anything like that, and the thing I love to look at is the list of logical fallacies in debating and, and, and talking in and one of them is that assuming that just because a majority of people believe something does not make it true. It is a logical fallacy to assume that because a large number think this, that it's necessarily a true fact. That is a fallacy. One of the other things about counting you've heard this phrase before don't count your chickens before they hatch. You never know what's going to happen don't think and assume that something is going to to happen because you think this is you're going to have this much, and suddenly something else comes up. This is about this can take a application to personal finances and your family and making sure that you have what you need and always you know until something is for certain until you've gotten paid for a job or until you've received this don't think that you have more. Than what you actually have. You have to wait and let the Lord bring things. And bless you in his own time. Counting money. If somebody thinks that they're a righteous man. And they've they've done great things. Because they've uh, accumulated a great deal of wealth. You can picture Prince John counting his coins in the castle. And thinking that he's done something great. And something fantastic. When that is absolutely not the case. Where our focus is always to be maintained on the Lord. And this is the point that I'm really trying to make in all of these things is this. Allow the Lord to count you. Allow the Lord to give you your place, your identity, what number you are, where is your place, what banner you stand under and how do you identify? We get ourselves in trouble when we try to count ourself. When we try to say I'm a part of this or I aren't I supposed to be here aren't I supposed to be there. I remind you of the parable that Yeshua spoke that when it says when you're going into a place that you're invited, sit at the place of humility so that the master may come and exalt you. Don't walk in and go to the place of honor to then have to be shamed and say, no, there is somebody more honorable than you. You have to now leave and go. You have to take the walk of shame to the place of humility. Let the Lord count you. All 12 of these men that were leaders of the tribes of Israel that are listed here, starting in verse 5 of this book, were called by God by name. Were called by their name and by their father's name. So that there was no mistaking who was being called by God. In the same way, Bethsilel, one of my favorite characters, was called by God to create the tabernacle. These 12 men were called by God to be leaders among the people. Some of these men might not have been the most qualified. If you took a vote amongst the tribes, some of these might not have made it. However, God himself is the one who declared these men to be the leaders. They are the anointed ones. And so that's what one of the things when it comes to being a leader, stepping out into a community. Let the Lord exalt you, call you by name. Let him be the one and by his authority that you have been given the right to lead. Not by your own, not by a majority that can sometimes be a fallacy of whether they believe you're the best man for the job, but let the Lord call you. We get in trouble when we try to count ourselves, when we change from what God has called us to do. The other thing I want to point out is Judaism. As they have grown as a religion, they count you to be Jewish and your heritage and your identity to be defined by your mother's line. By the matriarchal, uh, uh, it's a matriarchal society basically that you're not Jewish unless your mom was Jewish. That has nothing to do with the scripture that we have here. When that we these men are called by their father's name and by their line. And we don't talk about all the descendants of David. We don't talk about him being a descendant of Ruth, a foreigner. Or from Rahab, who was from Jericho, we talk about Boaz. We talk about the father and the line that it is. And this is the identity that God has given us because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, our fathers, our ancestors. Let the Lord identify you. This is what so many people are going through, and and when we've done Q&As and questions and and talked to a great number of people through the ministry, so many people have said, and they're always trying to seek their identity. They want to know who they are. They want to know if they're a part of the tribes of Israel. They want to know if they're a part of the, the naturally born, the scattered of the exiles. And then ch- young children who grow up without an example, what they do is they're seeking an identity. And that's why children join gangs. And that's why you get tattoos. And that's why you do these things. Because you're trying to identify with something. Rather than allowing your identity to be given to you, for an honor to be bestowed upon you, people go out and they seek it for themselves. But people get in trouble when they do that. When you're trying to seek your own identity, you're trying to seek your own honor. The multitude of people that left the land of Egypt were not all native born. Some of the critics of the book of Numbers have said that the number in which that we give that for the sons of Israel that could go to war and that we then assume that there was approximately two to five million people total when you add up the women and the children and everyone that wasn't in the count. People calculate and assume that this was a huge company of people. And then critics say there's no way that that could have been all sons of Israel. Well, that's true because it wasn't. Because they were also, all the other slaves of Egypt were free. Egyptians who declared their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. They left Egypt and they're going and following this people. Everyone else. This was a mixed multitude. It did not matter if you were a naturally born citizen of Israel. If you were a part of God, you were a part of this count. You were a part of God's people and God gave you that identity and you didn't go and seek it for yourself. That is the application that we can take in our lives and everything that we do in the position that we find ourselves in, in the families that we lead for the mothers who find themselves, you know, raising kids and, and being married and working hard and, and, and taking care of the kids in the house. And let me encourage the, the, the wives and mothers that the Lord has brought you to a wonderful place and seek the blessings and see the blessings that God has given to you and the name and the identity that you have been given to you in the family that you find yourself in. And men, you are to be under the covering of God and let him bestow upon you honor and blessing and everything that he's given to you has been given to you by God belongs to him so we always remember render back to him what belongs to god and understand your place your position and where you count and where you find yourself when amongst the people of god amen may we all be counted at the end of the age in the lamb's book of life amen Amen. heavenly father we come before you on the sabbath day we thank you lord for all the blessings you give to us in this place at this time Father, I, we thank you as we start the book of Numbers here in our Torah cycle. And Father, I pray that we would take it to heart and that we would um, continue to learn your ways and your instructions, Father. Though our ancestors sinned and make, made mistakes, Father, I pray that we would take application to us and that you we would learn to be a holy people before you. As we pursue your commandments and your instruction, Father, we love you, we bless you, and thank you for everything that you do for us in our lives, the blessings that you've given to us, the identities that you have given to us and that you have counted us in your holy company and amongst the body of Messiah. We love you and bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day for everything that you do in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah.
1: Amen. Shabbat Shalom.
5: Shabbat Shalom. It's good to be here with you today. I want to thank Monty and the Lion Lamb family for uh, allowing me the opportunity to share from the Haftarah this week. Uh, so our Haftarah this week it comes from the book of Hosea. Hosea. Uh, so if you would all like to uh, open up your word, open up your Bible, and uh, we would be reading from this. Um, now, in order to properly understand uh, where we're reading from in this portion this week, first we have to back up a little bit. So... In the English Bibles versus the Hebrew Bibles, you're going to find some differences in which verses are being read from. So, for example, in the Hebrew, if you're reading from a Hebrew Bible of any kind, it starts in chapter 2, verse 1. However, in your English versions, it will start in chapter 1, verse 10. And that's where our Haftarah readings begin is chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 22. Um, however, in order to get a good grasp on what's taking place here, starting in verse 10 of your English Bible or verse 1 of chapter 2 in your Hebrew Bible, um, I believe first we need to back up and read the entire, uh, entirety of chapter 1 of the book of Hosea. So uh, that is where we will start. So if you'd like to read along with me here, Hosea chapter 1. The word of Adonai, which came to Hosea, the son of Be'iri, during the days of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Jehuda, and during the days of Yeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, When Adonai first spoke through Hosea, Adonai said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking Adonai. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son, and Adonai said to him, Name him Yisrael, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Yehu for the bloodshed of Yisrael. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Yisrael. On that day I will break the bow of Yisrael in the valley of Yisrael. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And Adonai said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhama, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Yisrael, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Yehuda and deliver them by Adonai their Elohim and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses or horsemen. When she had weaned lo Ruchama, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And Adonai said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your Elohim. Yet the number of the sons of Yisrael will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living El. And the sons of Yehuda, and the sons of Yisrael will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Yisrael. So what we see here in chapter one of Hosea is the uh, prophet Hosea is being called out. Uh, now, Hosea, his very name, means salvation or deliverer. Uh, in fact, if we look in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16, we see that Joshua, Yehoshua, um, his name is first Hosea, just as the same as this prophet. And Moshe calls him Yehoshua instead of Hosea. And so, of course, we also know that our savior's name, Yeshua, is a derivative of Yehoshua. And so we can understand where Hoshea then would mean salvation or deliverance. So we have a prophet whose name is salvation or deliverance. And we have this story of how he is told by Adonai to go take a wife of harlotry. And in this, he then has to submit himself to taking on an unfaithful wife who then, as we read on in the story, cheats on him over and over. And he has to continually bring her back to himself and to have children with her that uh, with the wife of harlotry, who knows if they're actually his children or not. But then he has to adopt those children, whether they're his or not. And then he is in charge of naming them. And so we see that. Uh, Hoshea, who represents salvation or deliverance, uh, is the main character here. And then we have his wife, uh, Gomer. And Gomer, this is a very rare name, and she, at being a harlot, uh, represents the, the nation, the children of Israel at this stage, because as it says, they have partaken in flagrant harlotry against me. And so... This, this uh, woman that he marries, Gomer, now this is a very rare name. And in fact, the only other time that we see this, this name Gomer used in scripture, uh, it is uh, one of the sons of Yephthah or, or Jephthah, uh, however your uh, Bible would read and what state you're from. In Oklahoma, we say Jephthah. Um, but uh, Jephthah, uh okay, he had a son named Gomer. Uh, And so this wasn't necessarily even a feminine name, and it's very rare that someone would have this name. And so uh, this word gomer for for this woman, it comes from the root word gamar, which means to end, to cease, to bring to completion, essentially. And we can see that because the same word gamar is used in Psalm chapter 7, verse 9, where it says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, gamar, but establish the righteous." For the righteous Elohim tries the hearts and minds. And I think this verse from Psalms fits perfectly into the story of Hosea here, where it's talking about how the end will come to the wickedness, but that the righteous will be established, and that the righteous one Elohim will try the hearts and minds of his people. And we see that same message is going to be brought forth here in the book of Hosea. So... As we move on, then we see that the names of his children, he is ordered by Adonai to name his children specific things. And these have significance. So first we look at, he has a son. And that son is to be named Yisrael, Now, that sounds very much like Yisrael, and in fact, the pronunciation is very close, but they're spelled differently. So Yisrael has a Zion and an Ayin in it, and Yisrael has a Sin in it. Uh, No Zion or Ayin, okay? So as such, they sound very similar, but they're not the same things. Now, what is this Yisrael? What is this referencing? Well, if we look in 1 Kings, we see that Ahav, uh, the the uh, husband of Jezebel, uh, that king, he moved his capital in the northern kingdom of Israel to Yisrael. And so this then is a reference to the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel. When he names his son Yisrael, it's a direct reference to the capital at that point of the kingdom of the house of Israel as opposed to the house of Judah, okay? And so, as such, it says in verse 4, in direct reference to naming his son Yisrael, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of, of Yisrael, okay? So, in naming his first son, it's a reference to the capital of the northern kingdom, and how he is going to put an end to them. Then they have a daughter, and this daughter's name is Loruchama, uh, which Lo, of course, is the word no. Uh, Rachama, it comes from the root racham. And that means to love deeply, uh, to have mercy or to have compassion upon. And so we see that this is used significantly in Exodus chapter 33, verse 9, where it says, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, this is the verse where Moshe says, let me see your glory. And he says, I'm going to put you in this cleft of the rock. And this is what's going to happen. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Adonai before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show racham, compassion, on whom I will show racham, compassion. And so in saying that he will not have compassion in naming that daughter, lo Ruchama. Essentially, Adonai is pointing right back here to Exodus chapter 33, where he says, "I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion," and right now I am not going to show compassion on the house of Israel. And so then we see that he has another son. This son's name is Lo Ami, not my people, and this is heartbreaking. And in verse nine it says, "For you are not my people, and I am not your Elohim." This is heartbreaking because we now have a rejection that is taking place. Now, I personally believe that the reason why those that have selected what the haftarah readings are and are not have started it in verse 10 is because, unfortunately, verses 1 through 9 read very depressing. This is not a positive message. This is not one of uh, a lot of hope. In fact, this is very distressing. And yet, as he always does, he then finishes when he, anytime Adonai, he says, this is what is going to take place. There is always an then or a yet or a but. There is always that. And so we start in verse 10 where it says then that, this will not last forever. This is not complete. These things that I have said about the house of Israel, they will not be the end of the house of Israel. And this is where we go then into verse 10. And so here, the haftra portion starts off with good news. It says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living Elohim. The sons of the living El. This this is an incredible statement where he just said that I will bring destruction to your kingdom. That you will not have mercy. I will not have mercy upon you. And then you will not be my people. And he follows right up with saying, but there's coming a time when you will be as numerous as the sands of the sea. And wherever you are, there you will be known, not as not my people, but as the people, the sons of the living El. And so if we take a look at verse 10 here, um, I think there's some very significant things that tie directly into what we just heard from Ephraim about the Torah portion. And so if we look in verse 10, it says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. Now, this is ironic because we just have in this Torah portion where the sons of Israel are numbered. <laughs> okay? And so here we have a starting point. So in the, in the Torah portion that we just uh, heard from, we see that the fighting men of Israel are numbered from ages 20 to 50. Those are the, the fighting ages. Those men are numbered at 603,550 fighting men. And so if we then extrapolate out, as uh, Ephraim alluded to uh, in the Torah portion, if we extrapolate out then the women, the children, the young men under the age of 20, the older men over the age of 50, then we've got at least 3 million plus people that are coming out of the land of Egypt at this stage, that are at the foot of Har Sinai, Mount Sinai. And these are the people that he calls his children, that he calls his bride. And so when I think of this, and I think of how many, the vast number of people that would have been there in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness. Then it's reminiscent for me of the story of Bilam, or as in Oklahoma, we would say, Bailam. So this story of Bilam, this man who was called by the king Balak to come and and present a curse to speak a curse over the children of Israel as they are in the plains of Moab, as they are standing there uh, about to enter into the land of Israel And so Balak calls forth and he hires Bilam, this prophet, to speak this curse over the sons of Israel. And what's interesting, if we look at Numbers chapter 23, uh, verses 8 through 10, which we will get to in numerous weeks in the Torah portion, the words of Bilam are very telling. It says, how, can, how shall I curse whom Elohim has not cursed? How interesting that, first of all, that he starts off with this statement. How can he, as a man, curse what Elohim has not cursed? And yet, then we're reading from this portion here in Hosea, where it appears that Adonai is pronouncing a curse over, the, over his very people. And yet again, as we point out, he then draws it back and says, but this curse is not forever. It says, how shall I curse what Elohim, whom Elohim has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom Adonai has not denounced? As I see from the top of the rocks and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Yaakov or number the fourth part of Yisrael? Let me die The death of the upright and let my end be like his. These are the words of Bilam. Imagine placing yourself in his position where if you read this account, he was taken up to a high point where he could encounter and look over the entire plain of Moab and see all three million plus people of Israel to which his response is, how can anyone count this great number of people? This people that Adonai himself has brought out of the land, this people that Adonai himself is providing for, this people that Adonai is going before, how can anyone number them? And we see then in in verse 10 of Hosea 1 that there's the same reference that they will be beyond number, more than the sands of the sea. And for me, this is a, a tremendous statement here, speaking of the greatness and the goodness and the faithfulness of our king who preserves us through the generations. And then, as we move forward into verse 10, the second portion, it says, In the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living El. B'nai El Chai. Now, this, this phrase, B'nai El Chai, it, it is uh, rendered in our English versions as sons of the living God. But literally, B'nai El Chai could also be rendered uh, sons of the God who lives. As opposed to those gods of those regions that certainly does not live. But we serve a living God. And so the very definition of living then points to the fact that here, Adonai is pronouncing essentially a curse over the house of Israel. Saying that you are not my people. And then in verse 10 and in verse 11, he speaks of resurrection that they will be resurrected from death unto life. Why? Because He is the living God. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. And so His children are the living. And so as such, they will not be under the curse forever, but He will bless them and make them bountiful and make them multiply so that they are like the sands of the, the seashore. And so that, Wherever they are, it is said of them that they are the sons of the one who provides life, of the one who is the creator of life, of the one who resurrects from the dead. This is an amazing phrase that is is in this portion because this is a very rare statement. Sons of the living El doesn't appear a whole bunch of times. In fact, I believe it's only twice in the scriptures. And so to have it in this very spot here, right after this pronouncement of this curse, And followed up with the pronouncement of a blessing is very important. Because again, it points to the fact that our king, our living El, is the L of the living. He is the El of resurrection. So this points to the words of Paul. In Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 26, Paul makes some very interesting statements. In fact, he says, What if Elohim, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living El. Here, Paul in the book of Romans is quoting from the book of Hosea, recognizing that it was the house of Israel that was scattered unto the nations, that was peopleless identifiable as nothing. They were spread through all the nations. Whereas the house of Yehuda, whom he said he would keep intact, they kept their identity. And we thank him for them keeping their identity because they have brought us the Torah. They have preserved those traditions for us. And so we're thankful for him. But at the same time, this is a people who were scattered through all the nations who became not his people who have no identity, who were not called his beloved. And now Paul is even identifying that house of Israel, those that were scattered, as saying, those who are being called, upon whom he will exercise his mercy, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the nations, from among Gentiles. And so we see that Paul talks about this, referencing the book of Hosea, recognizing because the discussion there of, you know, Paul's ministry was a ministry that was to those who were not from the house of Judah. And he recognizes that the book of Hosea is speaking of the scattered house of Israel and how they will be unidentifiable. And thus they become the Gentiles. They become the nations. And now Adonai is fulfilling this verse, this phrase in Hosea, in Paul's lifetime, and in his ministry. And what's taking place is those from the house of Israel are being called back. And and it's taking the place of the Gentiles that are coming to faith in Messiah. And as we look on, it says in verse 11, And the sons of Yehuda, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Yisrael will be gathered, gathered together, now, there's some very interesting things that are, that are said here. First of all, it says the sons of Yehuda and the sons of Yisrael. And here we also have this distinction all throughout chapter 1 that's talking about the differences between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Anyone who says there are not two houses but there's only one house clearly does not understand what's going on in Scripture. Okay, Because there are clearly two different houses that are taking place. And we thank the Father for preserving Judah. And we thank Him for bringing them back from all the nations and bringing them to the land of Israel in our generation that we might witness what's taking place. However, we also identify with the fact that those that are coming to to Israel from all the nations, those who have come out of Russia and Europe and all the other places, they identify as Jews. They have come out of the house of Judah. They have maintained their identity. They're not people that have been called, not my people. They aren't people who have lost the mercy, but they've been preserved through all the generations and have maintained that identity as being Yehuda, Judah. Thus, this is where they get the term Jew from. Jew comes from Judah. And so they have identified with that versus the house of Israel that's been scattered and is not his people. And now he is drawing them back, not only in our days, but in Paul's days, which is what he was referring to. Now, what's very interesting is in the Hebrew, there's some super interesting words that are said here. It says, and so the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered. The word they're gathered is v'nikbatzu. Now, v'nik batzu, uh the, the v is and, okay? Um, and uh, the u on the end is is plural, to gather them um, We have, however, the main word here is the word kabats and and kabats means to gather together to to compile. Essentially, Um, this is um, should ring some bells for us because it's from this word that we get the word kibbutz, which were the original settlements in Israel when the. Children of Israel, when the Jews were regathering in the land of Israel, they were dwelling together in kibbutzim, in in a kibbutz, in a gathering together. And so how fitting that as they returned to the land of Israel, that this would be a reference to what's said here in Hosea chapter 1, verse 11, where the the house of Judah and the house of Israel will be kibbutzed. They will be regathered together. And the word together is yachad. So it says, v'nikbatzu Yachad And this word Yachad, very similar to the word echad, which we'll see here in just a moment. It means to join or to unite. Now here's the interesting thing, however, is that the kibbutzim, the, the kibbutzes, they were consisting of simply the house of Judah. The house of Israel hasn't joined those kibbutzes yet. So we haven't yet seen this completely fulfilled in our day or in our time quite yet. They have not yet become Echad. They have not Yachad together. They have not joined or united together yet. But it then says, so, after the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel, after they kibbutz Yachad, they gather together, then they will appoint for themselves one leader. Rosh Echad. And they will go up from the land, for great will be that day. Now, this one leader, this Rosh Echad, is very exciting. Because again, we haven't quite seen this yet, because the, the, those from the house of Judah and those from the house of Israel have not quite yet united together. However, we know that day is coming. And what's interesting about this is the terminology that they will appoint one leader, Rosh Echad, over them. Keep in mind... That when Adonai is speaking this through the prophet Hosea, he's speaking to two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Yehuda, Judah, to the south. He's telling them at this point, they have been divided. There was a rebellion. They split. And yet he is saying right here, after pronouncing the curse over the northern house, the house of Israel, and then promising them that he will not forget them, but they will become numerous and they will be called the sons of the living El. He then says, oh yeah, you two? You two that are fighting? I'm going to rejoin you as one. Okay? That has yet to happen. But here he says, the divided kingdom, that you will be rejoined as one, and that you will appoint one shepherd, one leader. Rosh Echad. Has this happened? Not yet. But it will. And the beauty of this is that we see that Paul references this again. In the book of Colossians. In chapter 1 verses 13 through 18. Where he says this. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible L, The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth. Visible. And invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, all kingdoms. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Paul goes on to say, he is also the head of the body. The rosh of the body. The church, the ecclesia, the kahal, the gathering of believers. And he is the beginning, the reshit, which is a reference to the beginning. Paul says this very measuredly. He makes a reference. He is the beginning. Speaking of how everything from the beginning was created through him. He is that beginning. The firstborn from the dead. The bekor is the Hebrew word for firstborn, which, by the way, is a reference to the Bikurim. We are in the time right now of having just celebrated the first fruits, the Bikurim, and now we are counting the Omer leading up to Shavuot. And what's amazing here is that Yeshua is the Bakor, the firstborn from among the dead, so that He Himself Will have to, will come to have first place, the rosh, the preeminent position in everything, as the words of Paul says in Colossians one. I believe this is an amazing principle that is derived here from Hosea, because it's Paul talking about carrying on that same thing, talking about how we will be reestablished under one kingdom, with one. Ruler And who that ruler is, is the Rosh, the head of the Ecclesia, the head of the Kahal. That same one is the Bacor, the firstborn, the first fruits of the resurrection. Coming back to the fact that we are serving the living Elf, the one who controls the resurrection, who is in control of life, who, by the way, has created all things. And in his son, he has created all those things. Who, by the way, is the beginning and has been from the beginning. Do you see how all of this fits together? One harmonious message that we are being given in our scriptures. All from the living El. The one who promises us that he will not forget us. But that he will restore us. That he will bring us back. And that we will be joined with our brothers Judah. And that we will be one under his leadership. This is an amazing thing. And I have to say, this is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah is speaking about. It says in Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Adonai, when it will no longer be said, as Adonai lives, the living El, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as Adonai lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Now, this isn't talking about Yehuda, because he references the house of Israel. Also, when he talks about banishing them, the house of Israel is still banished at this stage. We haven't yet been reunited, as we've already discussed. But what we've got here is the example as Ephraim referred to. There was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt in that first exodus. The second exodus, this exodus that Jeremiah is speaking about, where he brings everyone out of those lands, is also a mixed multitude. Do you see how everything fits together? And it's all harmonious. How he is going to bring us into the land. Those of us that are among the nations. That we are numbered as great as the sands of the sea. We have lost our identity. And yet he is calling us. He is wooing us back unto him. And we are going to be rejoined with our brother Judah. And we are going to be under one leader. One Rosh Echad. One king. And in that day. We will have no need. Of the sun or the moon or the stars. Because the light will emanate from him. We will see that the living waters will flow from under his throne. And we will be quenched. Our thirst will be quenched by those living waters. It is going to be an amazing day when we see this take place. And the beauty of it is that we're seeing it in our generation. In our midst even right now. As he has begun to gather back the house of Judah, and he is wooing us of the house of Israel back unto himself that we might be reunited. First, may our hearts be reunited with our brothers from the house of Judah. And then, may we be physically reunited as he, in the words of Jeremiah, calls us back to be reunited with him. Now, If you can't get excited about this, you need to go see the great physician so that he can fix your feeler because your feeler is broken. This is an exciting time and an exciting day that we're living in. And I will finish with this. I was speaking with my my our brother, uh, Rod Woodruff, this week, and he said something very apropos to this. And he talked about how during this time of counting the Omer that he has He has noticed through the ages, through the years that he has been doing this. That every year during this time, as we count the Omer, that there seems to be a building pressure that takes place during that time. That there seems to be a lot of challenges and things of that nature that are taking place. How fitting that we just read from the first parasha in the book of the wilderness, where our wilderness journey takes place. bed Numbers. And how we are in the wilderness to a certain extent at this point. Because we haven't been reunited with our brothers in the land. And how the pressure is building right now. Why? Because we are counting the Omer leading up to Shavuot. And how there are challenges and there are things that we are facing right now. That seem to be exacerbated, seem to be magnified during this time. And I can testify to that fact being true in my life. If you find yourself in that same position, if you find yourself facing challenges right now, facing difficulties, remember, He is the living L. He is the one who has promised to resurrect unto life. He is the one who has said, He will restore us and bring us back to a place where we are called the sons of the living L where we will dwell with him in his land under one Roshachad, his shepherd, his king. And we look forward to that day. Even so, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son on our behalf that he might be our Roshachad, our one leader, our one king. We ask, Father, that you would continue to lead us and instruct us in your ways that we might truly see these words fulfilled in our day and in our time, that we would be reunited with the other kingdom, our brothers, and that we would be reunited in your land and we would be under your headship. Father, we submit our lives to you. We submit our minds and our thoughts, our intentions, our goals, our dreams and our futures unto you. May we not pursue our own ends. But instead, may we submit ourselves to you, our one true ruler, our one true king. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we we'll leave you with the ironic blessing. <laughs>
4: I don't you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
2: before the King of Kings.